Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male five shekels of silver, and for a female, the valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at fifty shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth to its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed any more. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty geras shall make a shekel. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it, or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. 
And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff, shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in one sense, chapter 27 may seem like something of an odd way to end the book of Leviticus. Last time in chapter 26, we heard the blessings and curses of the covenant. Wouldn't that be the end of the book? That would be a very natural, logical conclusion. Why do we have chapter 27? We have these, these details about offerings, particularly with respect to vows. It brings us back full circle to the themes where Leviticus began. The difference is that in the beginning of Leviticus, the focus was on how these offerings prepare the way for us to enter God's presence, whereas here we're seeing how we are to live in God's presence. Particularly, the point of chapter 27 is the sanctification of daily life. I realize the details sound very strange to us because we don't live in that culture anymore, but... Eleven times in this chapter, we are told how something that is vowed becomes holy to the Lord. The question of the book of Leviticus is, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter the holy presence of God? And we have often heard this theme return, and especially here in the last half of the book. Be holy as I am holy. We are called to holiness. We are called to live as the holy people of God. God's purpose is that all the ends of the earth might become holy. That a renewed humanity might dwell in his presence forever. Just as a quick overview, remember how the first half of Leviticus was all about how can we approach God. Chapters 1 through 15, we we started with how the priests were to conduct the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7. There was the institution of the priesthood in chapters 8 through 10. The question of how to deal with clean and unclean in daily life in chapters 11 to 15. All leading up to and centering in the day of atonement when the high priest enters into the holy of holies. When humanity comes into God's presence because he's bearing the twelve tribes on his breastplate. He comes into the presence of the holy God. He enters, as it were, the age to come as he enters into the most holy place. Prefiguring what Christ would do when Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then... In the second half of the book, we've seen about the holy and profane in daily life in chapters 17 to 20. We heard the legislation regarding the priesthood in chapters 21 and 22, being holy as God is holy. And then concluding with the festivals and the organization of time in chapters 23 to 26. So in a sense, the, the first half of the book was all about how to approach the Lord our God, through the blood of the, of the sacrifice. And then the second half of the book is about holiness, living in communion with God. So how do you draw near to God? And then, once you're near, how do you live in communion with God? It's actually not an oversimplification to say that the first half of Leviticus is all about justification, and the second half is all about sanctification. As Paul says in Romans 5, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, first half of Leviticus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 
For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Second half of Leviticus. So Leviticus is all about the sacrifices of Israel and the holiness of Israel. And without the sacrifices, holiness is impossible. And without holiness, the sacrifices are meaningless. And so in this respect, the book of Leviticus, we hear the, the central challenge for a sinful humanity. How can God draw near to us without destroying us? If God is a consuming fire, if God is holy and we are not, we'll never get there. We have to be holy. Well, but, 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 but we're not holy. We're in trouble. First half of Leviticus. We need the sacrifices. Ultimately, we need Jesus' sacrifice. That's what they were all pointing to. But then the, throughout the Old Testament, God also makes it clear that the sacrifices are not magic. It's not just, offer these sacrifices and, okay, okay, now you're good. Don't, don't have to worry about a thing. That's why the second half of Leviticus is also important. You must be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And so in these final chapters of Leviticus, we're hearing about the, the principle of, of redemption. Uh, in, in Numbers, we'll go back to the, the narrative of Israel at Mount Sinai. So this chapter is plainly finishing up the themes of Leviticus and showing us ultimately how God himself will redeem his vow in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to redeem a vow? Uh, in our in our world, vows don't play a major role. We, we, okay, we take we take marriage vows, although the way we treat marriage vows would indicate we don't take vows very seriously. But what what was a vow? Well, in making a vow, a person demonstrates his love for the Lord and his thankfulness for God's answering prayer. Uh, so for instance, we see Hannah taking a vow, dedicating her son to the Lord. Uh, if you've ever wondered, okay, uh, Samuel was not from the tribe of Levi. How come Samuel becomes a priest? Because he was dedicated to the Lord. And therefore, he became he was effectively adopted by the priest, and therefore, even though he wasn't born into the tribe of Levi, he was adopted into the tribe of Levi, and so he becomes a priest, because he was dedicated to the Lord. And also, like in, in number six, the Nazarite vow, one denies himself certain pleasures, or in Leviticus six, uh, vows are vowing to present certain offerings. Deuteronomy 23 makes it clear that vows are optional, but if they're made, they need to be kept. And the principle of Leviticus 27 is that if you wish to redeem your vow, so in other words, if you vowed something to the Lord and you're like, okay, well, okay, I've, I've vowed this to the Lord, but I, I actually want to keep it, well then you need to pay a higher price than the value of the thing that you vowed. So, and this is applied then to human beings, to the land, to all the produce of the land. In other words, all of creation is in view. What Leviticus is, is doing here at the end is showing us this picture of God's purposes for creation, God's purposes for all of life. Because God himself has sworn by himself 
that he will save his people. God has vowed that he will do this. Leviticus 27 says, if you're going to redeem your vow, then you need to offer something that is more valuable than the thing that you're redeeming. You want to redeem humanity? You need to offer something more valuable than humanity. How did you get more valuable than humanity? Humanity is made in the image of God. There is nothing higher than than a human being. Well, um, actually, (laughs) except God himself. If God is going to redeem his vow, then he himself must give himself in order to redeem creation. Now, we see this laid out in starting off with the valuation of persons in verses 1 through 8. Now, dedicating persons to the Lord, uh, vowing people to the Lord, uh, this is... This is not unique to Israel, although uh, other ancient peoples would oftentimes do this by human sacrifice, or for that matter, by cult prostitution. You could vow your daughter to your God, and she'd go become a prostitute, and make a lot of money for your family along the way. Needless to say, God forbids that sort of practice in the scriptures. But there is, a, uh, as we see with, with, with Hannah's example, when Hannah d- devotes her son to the Lord, he is then taken into the service of the priests. But what if you desired to redeem the person thus devoted? In other words, okay, I will vow my son to the Lord. Well, but I'd, I'd actually, I'd kind of like my son to be in my own household. Not So God says, that's fine. But then, so you take the valuation of, that's given in the, of the various age groups. Uh, and there's a, it's a form of cash payment that would sub- be substituted for the devoted person. And so the, the man between the ages of 20 and 60 is valued at 50 shekels, the woman at 30 shekels. And this has to do with how much work you could expect, how much labor you could expect from a person at a, of a particular age. Um, and, and this is where part of it is. Young children oftentimes died before reaching adulthood. So before the age of five, it's not very expensive because the chances, I mean, the chances of a person reaching adulthood at that, at that age, eh, you never know. Uh, but by the time you reach the age of five, you're likely to make it to adulthood, so the value more than triples at age five. And then once you reach full, full adulthood, then the value, it's maximum value. And then, but you'll notice that this is also very generic. It's not based on sort of, you're not basing this on sort of a, an actual evaluation of a person's working ability. So for instance, a, a crippled 30-year-old man is still valued at the same rate as a strong, healthy 30-year-old man. So that's where it's, it's a, it's a generic way of, of valuing, uh, at each age range. And yet verse 8 makes it clear that the value is not absolute because a poor person must stand before the priest and the priest would value him according to what the vower could afford. So in the, in the end, this, the point that, that Moses is making here, the point that the Lord is making through Moses, is that God's mercy extends to all. And so if there's a person who can't afford to pay the vow, then go to the priest and the priest is supposed to look at the situation and say, okay, understood, you don't have the resources to make this work. We still want you to be able to participate in being able to make vows. And so the, the priest's judgment would stand. Now, verses 9 to 13 then reflect on the valuation of animals. And in the case of an animal that could be used as a sacrifice, it could not be redeemed. It must be sacrificed. And then verse 10 makes clear that if he tries to make a substitute, 
then both the original animal and the substitute would become holy and therefore belong to the priests. In other words, he'd wind up paying double for his folly. Now, you might wonder, how, who's going to know? God will. And then you think back to, remember all those laws about about earlier on in Leviticus about how if you, yeah, the, the, if, you, if you sin with regards to the Lord's holy things? Well, that's the, this then comes into play because you've, 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 you've vowed this animal and then you're like, ooh, that's, that's, that's turned out to be my, my best ox. I'm going to substitute my third best ox. <laughs> Nobody will ever know. It's probably true. Nobody will ever know. Nobody will catch you. You'll get away with it. But not before God. And now that best ox of yours is now also holy. And then every time you are piling with that ox, you are incurring guilt for your, for your, for the Lord's holy things. So that's where God is basically saying, you may not realize, yeah, you're not, you're not going to get away with it before me. So don't, don't try. Now, in the case of unclean animals, or for that matter, a clean animal that could not be sacrificed, uh, this would be valued by the priests, and if he desired to redeem it, he would pay an extra 20%, the fifth beyond the valuation. Again, we see that redemption is costly beyond the value of that which is redeemed. It's partly why we sang Psalm 49. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. Redeeming lives is costly. Verses 14 to 24 then go on to talk about the valuation of of houses and land. And if you dedicate your house as a holy gift to the Lord, then the way to redeem it would be to add a fifth of its value. Uh, The dedicated house would be used in the service of the priests. Uh, Part of this is, you might wonder, so why would somebody dedicate their house or dedicate their field or dedicate, sort of, well, it's that if... If this, this is, if you think about throughout human history, people have, have wanted to give thanks to God for what God has done. And have recognized that God has done great and mighty things. Actually, if you think about, this is what, this is what Rolf Kaler did when he died. When Rolf Kaler sort of left his estate to the church. He was, he was like, I, I don't have kids. I mean, if he'd had kids, we would, we would have said, you need to make sure your kids are taken care of. But he didn't have kids. And so he said, I want to help, I want to help the kids of the church. I want to help these spiritual grandchildren that God gave me. And so that's the sort, that's the sort of thing that, that, that Moses is talking about in Leviticus, where it's people who are wanting to see the kingdom of God furthered and prospered in, in the land. Um, and so that's where, the, so to say that we want to make sure that the priests and the Levites are taken care of and supported, that's the sort of thing that uh, Leviticus 27 is talking about. And then, it, but in, in, the, in the case of a, when somebody dedicates a part of his property to the Lord, uh, this would mean that then the produce from that property would go to the priests. But since the land could not be permanently alienated, it would be restored at the Jubilee, and so the valuation was based on the number of harvests before the next Jubilee. Uh, and if he wished to redeem the field, the owner would have to pay an extra fifth beyond its remaining value. 
and verses 20 and 21 make clear that if a man does not wish to redeem the land at the Jubilee, then the land would remain the permanent possession of the priests. Uh, Now, think about how this works, because like in verse 23 it says, if a man dedicates a field that's not part of his inheritance... So, for instance, remember that you can rent, you can, you can buy someone else's land, you're effectively renting it until the next jubilee. So if, if you dedicate a field that's not part of your inheritance, that you've rented, then he must pay the valuation at the jubilee since he doesn't have the authority to permanently give it to the priests. So now, but think about how this works, because without this provision, just think of how much damage you could do to your neighbors. I buy a field. But then before the Jubilee, I dedicate it to the Lord. And it goes to the Lord. And now my neighbor who was expecting to get it back at the Jubilee, sorry, it belongs to the Lord now. That's why, that's why God says, no, you, no, you can't do that. If you dedicate someone else's field that you temporarily control, then you must redeem it. You, that's not an option. You may not use God's law to defraud someone else. Actually, Leviticus 27 is very much in view in the Gospel of Mark and other Gospels where where Jesus condemns the Pharisees for allowing people to get out of their filial obligations to their parents by devoting their property to God. I mean, the mechanism's easy. Devote the land to God and forego the profits from the land for a time, but then redeem the land after your parents die because every year brings you closer to the Jubilee and thus lowers the cost of redemption. No. You may not use the law of God to defraud others. Now, Leviticus 27 had condemned that approach. The Pharisees were not, sort of, by any stretch, abiding by the law of God. They were, as Jesus says, destroying the law of God by allowing people to get away with these sorts of shenanigans that Leviticus 27 actually condemned. But... Verse 25 then gives the basic standard for valuation, the the shekel of the sanctuary. In the ancient world, there were lots of of different coinage. And so, you know, one of the big challenges they have in those days is different weights and measures, different coins. Every kingdom will have its own coins, and the coins may be slightly different weights. And so, how do you know what... and, and Everybody calls it a shekel, but okay, so what? Sh- it's the shekel of the sanctuary. So the, the priests will maintain their own standard of the, the, what is the shekel, and that, even, that may change over time, then that's actually okay, as long as it remains standard, as the, that it's always, at any given time, everybody's being valued the same way. Then we see a, some, some particular rules for exceptional cases. Uh, the, the firstborn of animals in verses 26 and 27. That in Exodus 13, God had said that the firstborn of every animal belongs to the Lord. And so you, you can't dedicate to the Lord what already belongs to Him. The firstborn of, the, of every clean animal belongs to the Lord. The firstborn of an unclean animal could be either redeemed at the, at the 20% addition or sold by the priests for its valuation. Now, you, you might wonder, because we were talking about persons earlier, what about the firstborn child? This will actually be dealt with in, Levit- in Numbers chapter 3, where the Levites are set apart in place of the firstborn males of the people of Israel. The Levites themselves belong to the Lord. He is their inheritance. And it's, it's, worth, it's worth saying that 
if, if, if the Levites belong to the Lord, if they are his, of God's own inheritance, this is why we now talk about the general office of believer. Because all of God's people are Levites, you might say. All of God's people are priests. All of God's people are those who enter into the Holy of Holies in and with Jesus. Jesus is our great high priest who has gone before us and entered into the heavenly Holy of Holies. But he doesn't, he doesn't just bring us with him in some sort of symbolic sense with the breastplate like of the priest. He brings us with him into the presence of our God. We enter the heavenly Holy of Holies in and with Jesus. Then verses 28 and 29 insist that nothing devoted can be redeemed. Now, this is a key distinction between dedicating and devoting. To dedicate is to offer a gift for the usage of the priests. To devote is to dedicate something directly to God by destroying a thing. Uh, Anything devoted to God is most holy to the Lord. It must be destroyed. If a person or animal is devoted to God, it shall be put to death. If a house or building is devoted to God, it must be destroyed. Uh, This is the the first usage of of the Hebrew word cherem, which means to devote to destruction. God will command Israel to devote Jericho, the city of Jericho, to destruction. The people, the animals, the buildings, everything must be destroyed, devoted to destruction. Jericho is the first fruits of their warfare and must be devoted entirely to God. The gold and the silver from the city must be given to the priests and everything else must be destroyed. It's worth noting that that King Saul, uh, when he, in his his rebellion against God, the rebellion which wrenches the kingdom from him, was when he allowed the people to take plunder from the Amalekites, which God had explicitly commanded to be devoted to destruction. And so that which is devoted to God is wrenched out from the world of human possession and returned to the true owner and giver of life. So God, when, when something is devoted to destruction, God says, this is, this is a, it's done as a, as a reminder and as a warning that God's judgment is coming upon all the earth. And this is the, you might say, the intrusion of God's last day's final judgment uh, upon the earth. Verses 30 to 33 then speak of, of the redemption of tithes. Uh, but so you would you would give a tithe of of your produce each year and also a tithe of your flocks and herds and the common practice was to have the animals pass through a narrow place and every tenth animal that passed under the herdsman's staff would be the tithe now it might be tempting to fix the system to ensure that, oh, it just so happened this, that it was just the weak and sickly animals. Every tenth animal happened to be a weak, sickly animal. I don't know how that happened. You could, if you, then God says, no, no, don't, don't substitute. Don't fix the system. And if you try that, then both the tenth animal and the substitute would be holy and neither could be redeemed. So God's warning his people, trust me, believe me, and I will provide for you. Because God is teaching his people that vows are costly. We've seen in Leviticus that the spoken word is powerful. A curse proclaimed against a deaf man is especially wicked because he cannot defend himself against it any more than a blind man can defend himself against a stumbling block, as we saw in chapter 19. Even so, vows are powerful. 
They can take on a life of their own. Deuteronomy 23, in reflecting on this, says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Now, there are two ways you could take this. You could say, oh, well... I'll just never vow anything. That way I'll never get myself in trouble. But that misses the point. Because Deuteronomy 23 and Leviticus 27 are are not just talking about vows, but all promises that come forth from your mouth. Jesus corrects the error of the Pharisees in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. You don't need to add a lot of flowery speech for your word to become a vow. When you tell your friend, I will do it, you have vowed to the Lord. Jesus is saying that you're, yeah, actually your ordinary verbal commitments are to be treated like vows. If you say you'll do something, you're bound to do it. And if you fail to, to do that which you said, then you've sinned. And that's where, as the proverb says, if you find that you've entrapped yourself by what you've said, by all means, go to your neighbor and say, Ah, will you let me out? I'm, yeah. But if he won't let you out, then you need to do what you said. And redeeming your vows is costly. But the point of Leviticus 27 is to show Israel the importance of one's word. And there is no greater example of this than the cross. Because God had promised Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. He had promised Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. Because redemption costs more than the value of the one who was vowed. And so how can humanity be redeemed? Because only a sacrifice greater than humanity could pay for humanity. And so we see the mystery of the incarnation. It it had to be a man who paid for man's sin, but only God could pay the price. And therefore our Lord Jesus had to be fully God and fully man in one person. He has fulfilled his word. He has redeemed his vow so that we might not be devoted to utter destruction. He himself was devoted to destruction. He himself took upon himself that curse. And thus, as those who are in Christ, we share in his suffering and glory. And and really, this is where the whole of the Christian life is then lived as living sacrifices to God. Think of how Paul says this in Romans 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a way in which in the New Testament, when the New Testament uses the language of offering and sacrifice as something that we do as Christians, it's almost always in this sense, in this sort of Leviticus 27 sense of the vow offering. Present your bodies as a vow offering to God. Because the... Really, Leviticus 27 is showing us how sacrifice, how this vow offering is a way of life. Because the call of holiness is, at its root, a call to friendship with God. The, the vow offering is the one offering in the entire Old Testament that you're never required to give. It's the one 
totally free offering. You never have to do it. You're never required to vow. And yet, that's precisely what Paul says in Romans 12. This is what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your bodies as a vow offering to God. Present yourself to God as a vow to be, which has only been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Irenaeus said this well back in the second century. We have given nothing to him previously, nor does he desire anything from us as if he stood in need of it, but we do stand in need of fellowship with him. And for this reason, it was that he graciously poured himself out that he might gather us into the bosom of the Father. And just as a, a cutting from the vine planted in the ground fructifies, 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 becomes fruitful in its season, or as a corn of wheat falling into the earth and becoming decomposed rises with manifold increase by the Spirit of God who contains all things, and then through the wisdom of God serves for the use of men, and having received the word of God, becomes the Eucharist, which is the body and blood of Christ. So also our bodies, being nourished by it and deposited in the earth and suffering decomposition there, shall arise at their appointed times, the word of God granting them resurrection to the glory of God. The whole of, crea- <coughs> the whole of creation is brought into friendship with God through the offering of Christ Jesus. Therefore, <clears throat> Let us offer ourselves to him freely. As we saw at the beginning of Leviticus, you, you cannot give to God the, sort of the leftovers. Whatever is first in your life will receive the first of your time and resources. Whatever it is that matters most to you is what you'll devote yourself to. And the point of the sacrifices, the point of of the offerings at the beginning of Leviticus was to deal with sin and establish communion with God. Now, at the end of Leviticus, we see once more there is an economic aspect of life before God. Holiness requires sacrifice. If you belong to God, then your whole life is to be devoted to Him. And it's, it's not that you give all your money to the church. It's not that you give all your time. It's, it's, it's not about the church. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about how you live in your homes, in your workplaces. It's how you live at work is every bit as important as how you live at home and how you live on Sunday morning. And Because how we walk before God is that living sacrifice that comes comes into every aspect. Thank you. Because God's purpose is to bring all creation back into friendship with himself. And so all that we are and all that we have is to be devoted to that end. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, have mercy on us. Because we... We forget, and we don't, we don't love the way you have loved us. We, we don't listen to your word and put it into practice. We, we listen to the, the, all the, the noises around us. We listen to all the voices that, that 
call to us from other sources. Have mercy. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to hear what you are saying to your people that that we might hear and believe and put into practice the things that you have said. Father, may your word and your spirit take root in our lives that we might bear witness to the faithfulness of Jesus, that we might show forth the love of Christ in, in the way that we walk, that we might, that we might live as as a new creation, as the new humanity that you have called us and made us to be. Lord, help us and grant that we might offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as those who, are, who have been joined to the life of your Son, who now live and, and walk by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that in our, in our homes, that we, would, that we would listen well and hear those around us, that we would that we would in our in our workplaces be those who who understand your will and put it into practice that we might that we might be those who who bring peace and comfort to those who are afflicted help us lord to be those who who show forth the 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 glorious good news of your son who loved us and gave himself for us that we might Make disciples in each place where we live, that in each place where you've put us, help us to be those who, who show forth the glorious gospel in our, in our deeds as well as in our words, that those around us might see in us and hear from us the good news that Jesus has come and has been seated at your right hand as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, help us and grant that we might seek not, own, not our own interests, but rather the interest of others, that we, might, that we might humble ourselves, even as your beloved Son humbled himself for us and took on the form of a servant and endured the cross, that through his suffering he might triumph over sin, death, and the devil forever. Thank you, and have mercy upon us, and, and bless those who are, who are suffering and afflicted, and have mercy upon those who are tried and tempted, and call them to yourself, and draw near to them in the midst of their troubles and trials, that you would shine upon them the light of your countenance and grant to them your peace. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.